you would, good and turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We'll uh, get there momentarily. There's a lot of sickness going around, so Some have asked, and we didn't know yet, but um, just for your information, um, Grace's heart catheterization is scheduled for um, this coming Tuesday, yeah, June 6th. So, we'll be praying for her, of course, in that. She's uh, rather anxious about it, as I guess is understandable. Hebrews chapter 9, we'll get there in just a minute, we've already started into this chapter, but I thought here, just with this, maybe, maybe it's around here, and he calls it games, fewer people put on the spot, anyway, so keep in mind, alright, with the big picture in the book of Hebrews, alright, uh, the book of Hebrews begins by presenting the superiority of Christ because of his what? First two words, remember? His person. person, right? Because of who he is. And it makes sense. You know, it's foundational to everything. Because if, you, if he's not who he is, then what he did is not uh, significant, not as significant, of course. But uh, his person, and then there were three aspects of that that were argued for in the first several chapters there in uh, Hebrews. And of course, first was what? His, regard, regarding his person, spirit person, it started with his deity. All right, deity, then his humanity, his superior humanity, and then also his faithfulness. And it stressed that he and he alone, of course, was be faithful to everything that God the Father had given him to do. And then uh, in the in the big picture, the big argument of the book of Hebrews, it moved on from his person to talking about his superior priesthood. Right? And then we'll get to the superior principle, faith in Christ, uh, in just another chapter or so. But uh, his superior priesthood. And there's several areas um, that are highlighted, that are emphasized, I guess you could say, concerning his priesthood. And, and obviously they're all given in comparison to uh, the Levitical priesthood, the old priesthood, right? And, uh, but there's really, you could say, five areas that are emphasized. We haven't looked at them all yet. Regarding his priesthood, does anybody remember? We've looked at several of these so far, but does anybody remember what these are? Uh, as far as the outline that we put up for alliteration's sake, they've all began with S. All right. Uh, first of all was the the source of his priesthood. All right. In other words, where his priesthoods come from, what it's based on, and he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which in the again the presentation of Hebrews. Uh, is demonstrated as being 
superior to the Levitical priests because they all came, number one, after, but also they did homage, if I can say it that way, to Melchizedek when Abraham did, all right? Uh, and anyway, in that, so it starts out with that. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and one of the things that is emphasized in chapter 7 of Hebrews, particularly about that is, Melchizedek is said to have had and, and to have an unchangeable priesthood. In other words, you could say he's always been a priest. Remember that in Genesis 14, when he's first introduced on the scene, the very first description given about him, if I remember right, is that he was the priest of the Most High God. Actually, I think King of Salem first, but then the priest of the Most High God. When you, when you just begin reading in Genesis 1 and then you come to chapter 14 and you see that statement, when you think about it in a broader context, that ought to stand out to you because he's the one that's said to be the priest of the Most High God. The only one really that's ever said about. And then the Levitical priesthood is, is brought into the picture many years later. And uh, obviously then, as Hebrews argues, for some very specific and temporary purposes. All right, um, and so his priesthood, because of its source, is superior. And then uh, another S. All right, we, again, we, we haven't looked at all these yet. We're we're actually in the fourth of these. But um, anybody remember what another area of his priesthood that's presented as being superior to the Levitical priesthood would be not only because of his source, but then it moved on to talking about his. And actually, I said five. The, the, one of the five, I used the word significance, which was in that third warning passage. But I'm not really putting that, greatly emphasizing that in, in, in the outline here. But then, so setting that one aside, then the next one was in chapter eight, was the script, all right, or the new what? Covenant, all right? Uh, the new covenant, which is superior to and supersedes, has replaced the old covenant. And it's not just talked about in chapter 8. We see it introduced, and it's talked about, we see it really throughout chapter 9 as well. Uh, and even what we're going to look at this morning, again, because it's, it's one of the way Hebrews argue. It's not just it moves on from one point to the other, but he introduces things, and then sometimes he'll mention something and pick back up on it later, and he's into a lot more detail of it and so on, but it, it, these things all work together and they're all continually in the picture of the argument of Hebrews here, but the script of his priesthood, he's a priest that's, he's after the new covenant, in fact, we're going to see some other specific things about that here in chapter 9 today, but then chapter 9, the main thought that we're, we're putting in the outline regarding this as far as an S is what, the, is priesthood is superior not only because of its source and because of the script, the new covenant, but because of the where he operates, the sanctuary, all right? Uh, and that's, again, just using S words here, but uh, you can think of it as tabernacle, right? The old priesthood operated in the tabernacle, right, in the wilderness, and then obviously that became set in one location, uh, after you know the days of Joshua when they got settled in the promised land and so on eventually was replaced with a permanent structure Solomon's temple and so on but 
that all of that goes into the same thing here, right? It was a temporary thing in reality. And as chapter 9 is emphasizing the first 10 verses, basically, not only was it temporary, but it was, it was basically only for a teaching point. In other words, it was an object lesson, you could say. It was, it was in fact, in, in uh, uh, verse 9 of chapter 9 says it was, a, it was a figure for the time and then present. The word figure there is actually parable. It, it was a, again, it was just used, it was for the purpose of teaching some lessons. What went on in that tabernacle in reality never did a bit of good for man's sin. In reality. It was all ceremonial. Right? Uh, now, the only good, if you could say, that it was, was because they were doing what God said. And as long as they did what God said and believed God's word, then that was good for them, okay? But what went on there was never the basis for God forgiving sin. God has always and only always looked at what Christ did as the basis for forgiving sins. Now, keep in mind, God's eternal. He's omniscient, so it's not like, you know, uh, like us, we're bound by time. We think of things as past, present, future. In God's mind, Christ, you know, again, that's all he's ever seen as a basis for forgiving sin is Christ. He didn't, you know, say, well, they did this until Christ. No, he, he just always seen Christ as the basis for for forgiveness of sins and providing salvation, all right? And so the sanctuary, he serves in a better sanctuary. We're going to see more of that. And then in chapter 10, the last S is, and it's talked about in chapter 9 as well, but the sacrifice of his priesthood. In other words, what he offered up is far superior to those animal sacrifices that were offered throughout the Old Testament, all right? And, uh, and, and again, it's not that they were wrong because God told them to do certain things. And even before the Mosaic Law, by the way, men offered sacrifices, offered animal sacrifices. I mean, think about it this way. Who is the first one in the Bible, historically speaking, who's the first one that we see offering an animal sacrifice? Actually, before Abel, but Genesis 3, God himself, all right? So, I mean, he, he's the one that set the example, the pattern for that to be done. Abel followed that and, and others. In fact, again, because in Hebrews 11, we'll get there here in time, uh, mentions that by faith, Abel offered. So, in other words, anything that's done by faith means it's a response to what God had said. So, God had obviously given instructions concerning the sacrifice. They're not recorded for us in Genesis 3, 4, and so on. But obviously, he had given those instructions because Abel, he did what he did by faith, Hebrews 11 says. That means he did, he was responding to what God said. He trusted God's word, took God at his word, did what God said. On the other hand, Cain's offering was rejected because obviously it didn't have blood, okay, but because he didn't do what God said. He did what he thought. It was his way, which again is a, and a number of these things, you know, we don't have everything that occurred in history for us in the Bible, but we have things that God wants us to know, and therefore an example, right? Cain is the example of man's religion. 
Man coming up with some, because as Romans 1 says, his vain imaginations, coming up with some way that he can do something to please God or to earn standing with God. And obviously none of that works. The only thing that, that brings one into a good standing with God is faith, is by doing what God said, taking God at his word, right? And, and we see that clearly. All right, so these are, those are the, the, uh, the reasons given in Hebrews concerning Christ's sacrifice. The passage of Scripture that really that we're going to get into this morning is a very, I was thinking about this on the way here, what words to use here, and I really, I'm still at a loss for this because these are some of the most sacred verses in all the Bible, I think, what we have in these next uh this next portion here in the book of Hebrews. This is, I, I, um, I, I think you could look at it this way. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through, say, chapter 10, verse 18. These are, to the book of Hebrews, what I would consider, say, Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through uh, 28, being to the book of Romans. It's the crux of the whole argument of what Romans is about, really. I mean, Romans is a, the book of Romans is a systematic uh, explanation of the doctrines of salvation, but but it, it's looking at it more from a, probably what you could say a legal standpoint. Hebrews looks at salvation from a whole different viewpoint. It looks at it from the, the, the viewpoint of the, the priestly work that went on by Christ and how that secured salvation for us. Not from the legal standpoint, but from a priestly standpoint. The, uh, I don't know if you could say a religious standpoint, but what he did and so on. A very unique view uh, that's presented in Hebrews. But these are, these are some of the most uh, sacred and in some ways, I'll have to say, some of the deepest waters, if you want to say, in the book of Hebrews because of what's talked about here. Um, <laughs> But we have, as, as chapter 8 started, remember it talked about this is the sum of what we have. We have such an high priest, all right, who is, uh, and if I could even read my writing here, who is uh, after the order of Melchizedek, who is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, who did his service in the true heavenly sanctuary, who offered the perfect sacrifice, and he did it to fulfill the new and better covenant. All right, and I'll just leave that at that for introductory remarks. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Excuse me, then we'll jump in here to chapter 9. All right, Father, this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture, we realize uh, we're missing some folks this morning due to sickness and so on. I pray that you help them work in each of those uh, lives who are affected by that, both whether it's kids, parents taking care of them, and all this, or whether it's some of the, the adults that are sick as well, but we just pray you would you'd work and bring health back and uh, all of that, so uh, not just that people can get on with normality of life, but so uh, people can be assembled together again uh, in church and so on, but Lord, help us this morning as we look at this portion of scripture, help us to, uh, number one, um, be faithful to your word, have, have the mind of Christ, uh, helping of the Holy Spirit as we look at this passage, but also, Lord, to have the deepest um, and sincerest of appreciation for what Christ has done. Lord, um, 
We, we obviously could never thank you enough for what you've done and uh, for what the Lord Jesus has done for us. But we um, just offer up this word of thanks. Help us to love you as we should. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Hebrews 9, the sanctuary of his priesthood. Uh, first 10 verses, we somewhat looked at these last week. Again, they present the old tabernacle, the old priesthood. And the place is described, and there's not a great detail about it here, but it just kind of gives an overall general description of kind of what, what went on in that tabernacle and how that uh, there was certain furniture involved there and the various things. And, uh, you know, on a daily basis, the priest went into that first, and he calls it the first tabernacle, the holy, what we generally call the holy place, the, the first room inside the tent when, when the priest went in. But then it specifies that into the second tent, the second room, only one man was ever allowed in there. I mean, that, that's amazing when you stop and think about it. It's just that high, whoever the high priest was at the time, obviously that changed when he died and he was passed on and so on. But during the life of that high priest, he was the only man ever allowed inside that tent into that room of the, of the tabernacle. That's, I mean, if you think about it, put yourself in his shoes for a second. I mean, that's a great weight, if you think about it. I mean, some people know he was privileged. Well, really, it wasn't necessarily a privilege as such. It was a great responsibility that he had. And um, he, you know, I, I, I can imagine if, you know, in the mindset, as that day of atonement approached, and you had to do that. I mean, that was a fearful thing. Right? He had to trust God, okay? Uh, faith was obviously involved in it on his part personally, and then the people trusting God's word that, you know, uh, God would atone for another year of their sin through what was done there. But that was that was fearful, a fearful thing, I would think, to, to go through that and know that in a way, the weight of the nation was on your shoulders better make sure you did exactly what God said and, and all of that. And, and these first 10 verses just kind of give an overview of that. And there's an, em uh, an emphasis put on not just all the things that the priest did. There were many things and daily things that the priest did. But that one day a year, that day of atonement, in fact, um, it's, it's described for us in Leviticus chapter 16. I encourage you to, to read that. We're not going to take time this morning to go back there and look at it. But uh, if you would say there was one day that was the holiest day of the year for the Jews, it was the Day of Atonement. All right, I mean, they have, they have a number of special days and feasts and so on, but that Day of Atonement was the day of the year that everything really, if you want to say in a spiritual mindset, hinged for them. And that's what is being used here as comparison to what Christ did, all right, or Christ's work surpassing that here, because if you think about it, if the writer of Hebrews can establish that that's the greatest day for the Jewish faith, all right, and Christ's work is far better than that, then obviously he wins in the in the argument, the comparison of things, all right, and so that's what's in the in the background, the mindset here for this, but. Uh, in, in these verses, it's describing, right, this place was described, its performance was defined there in verses 6 through 8, mostly 6 and 7, but how the priest went in on the high priest once on that day, that specific place, all right? But then he specifies in verses 8 through 10 that 
It was never intended to be on, it was, a, it was a temporary thing. It was always intended by God to be temporary. He says in verse 8, the Holy Ghost, this signifying, that's the idea of clarifying, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. As long as that was going on, the Holy Ghost was making it clear that there was no direct access to God on behalf of the people. Only that high priest once a year could go into that tent with following the specified procedure on behalf of the people. They couldn't do it. All right, there was no direct access. Um, and then he says in verse 9, it was a figure. We talked about that uh, for that present time back then, in which were offered both gifts, sacrifices. Notice that it says, could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and car carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. And the idea is obviously there was no real efficacy in what was done there. It was only a ceremonial thing. It never really was a basis for anything really spiritual. All right, Again, they were just doing what God said to do, and God was using it as a lesson, a teaching tool. All right, In God's mind, he's always and only, always, only ever seen Christ's work, his sacrifice, as the basis for forgiveness of sin. Even in that time, God already saw Christ. I mean, as, as First Peter says, he was slain before the foundation of the world. That's not talking about a historical thing, but the point being, in God's mind, he knew it, he's seen it, and that's always been his basis for being able to deal with man, is Christ. All right? But he did things differently until Christ's time came, if you want to say, for purposes of teaching and revealing himself, revealing things about man. The law demonstrated man's inability to do anything right before God on his own. Right? I mean, that was one of the whole big things about the law and the, and the tabernacle for these verses. Part of the point was to show that there was not any ability on man. Right, and and it was it was a there was a veil there for a reason to keep them out. And it's not that God didn't want to have a, a relationship, but He's teaching them again. Man on his own accord cannot access God. He's separated. He's cut off because of his sin and all the the sins that are you know pictured in all the things that went on with the tabernacle service and the sacrifices and so on. All right, but it's permanent tonight. Let's move on now. Verse eleven. Verses 11 through 23, really the next section here, next paragraph, so I want to say, uh, make the contrast now between that old that was temporary and now Christ and the new. In fact, if you look at the wording in verse 11, the new, greater, more perfect tabernacle uh, that's, that's talked about. In contrast to that Levitical system, all right? There's, uh, and if I had PowerPoint up here, this would be the first thing under this new heading. Christ has arrived and completed his priestly work, verses 11 through 12. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, 
having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, there's a lot in these verses, okay? Uh, but you'll notice that verses 11 and 12, they're one sentence. They go together, one statement here, all right? Uh, but Christ being come in high priest. The idea is, all right, Christ has arrived. When it says Christ being come, it's kind of not normal wording for us today. In our, but, but the idea is, is Christ has come. He has, and, and the word, it's not like just the word come. It's, it's he's arrived. He's appeared, all right? Now think about this. Again, from the, the whole Hebrew perspective and even the whole biblical perspective. The Old Testament basically prophesied that Christ, Messiah, remember words Christ and Messiah are changeable basically, all right, just different language, but Messiah would come. Christ would come. Now, the writer of Hebrews is saying, he's arrived. He has appeared. He has come. All right? That's important for, I mean, the, the, it was a historical fact. There was no denying the, the historical factual basis of Jesus being here already. All right? Remember the argument that, that Paul used as he went into the synagogues and began to evangelize? Uh, like Acts 17, for instance, says that he went in, and I might misquote a little bit, but the general idea is he went in and he reasoned from the scriptures. Took him back to the Old Testament scriptures. He reasoned from the scriptures that Christ had to suffer and die. Then he moved to the point that this Jesus is Christ, right? He laid the principles you see from the Old Testament. Christ had to do this and this and this. Now, look, Jesus did that. He's the Messiah, all right? That was the, the logic that Paul used in, in addressing the Jews with the gospel, right? And the writer of Hebrews, whether it was Paul or not, probably was, but regardless of who it was, all right, he's kind of using the same approach. He's laying out principles of the Old Testament. Now he's specifically saying all right, Christ, Jesus, he's fulfilled this, all right? But uh, he says that Christ has arrived. He's completed his priestly work. Christ being come. Again, Messiah has arrived. He's appeared. He's, he's, he's already come, okay? He has arrived, and then it says good things are about to come. Uh, again, the wording is a little different for us today here, but he says he's the high priest of good things to come. He's appeared, and because he is here, because he's He's come and done something. Good things are now available. They are, the wording of it, think of this from that standpoint. They're about to come, all right? But now that he's fulfilled it, it's there. It's available, all right? So good things have arrived through Christ. These good things came as of now, as of his arriving, through his ministry in that greater and more perfect tabernacle that he's talking about. Right? Through what Christ has done, he's come, he's fulfilled that Old Testament picture, and now good things are available. Compared to the Old Testament, now there's good things. That's the idea. The Old Covenant, that Mosaic, that Levitical system, all right, there was really nothing good, nothing effective in it. But through what Christ has done, there are plenty of good things now, is, is kind of the picture here. All right? Um, He's arrived. Now, uh, and then in, in verse 12, all right, not by the blood of animals, but by his own blood. That's, that's what's emphasized in this verse, all right? He didn't come 
and apply the blood of, he specifically says, goats and calves, whatever. But he's, he's referring to a specific day and things here and what they did, all right, and the sacrifices that were used on that day. And the blood that was brought in on the Day of Atonement was the blood of a goat, all right, which is an interesting thing, but, uh, but it was the blood of a goat that was brought into, the, uh, into that Holy of Holies that day on the Day of Atonement. But he's saying here, it wasn't by the blood of animals that Christ did his service. It was by his own blood that he did. This is very, very important because we're talking about the blood of Christ, right? The blood of, and who is Christ? He's God the Son. Eternal God the Son who became man at a specific point in history, all right? He became man. Now he's the God-man. He's still man, by the way. He's still man. I mean, I, I, there's so many things about who Christ is that are very difficult for us to really grasp fully and to rationalize out because we can't identify with him. I mean, but he's he's man. He didn't just, it wasn't like God who just put on a human body as a disguise and, you know, walk around. He became man. He took on humanity. Right? And in doing so, think about this, he's still God. That's what's hard to rationalize. And a lot of people, uh, a lot of groups go off on wrong tangents because they can't rationalize these things out. There are some people, there's a group, a religious group particularly, that says, well, Jesus was a man at some point, sometimes they say at his baptism, there by John, but that the spirit of Christ came upon him. A divine spirit came upon him. And then that spirit left him at the cross and so on. I mean, but that's not what the Bible teaches. He's God who became man. Now, and this is going to be pertinent to what we see in, in next verse, next couple of verses here, but think about this. Even as that, he, when he became man, he didn't cease to be God. He's still God. And I've heard, heard it said, well, he laid aside all his attributes and came on. He didn't lay aside his attributes. He emptied himself of divine prerogatives in the sense of what he had the right to. And he, this is what Philippians 2 teaches. He emptied himself in the sense of he set aside the rights of, that he had as being God the Son and came and did a servant's work. It's like a, a rich householder in that day who had servants and so on. He came, and this doesn't just do it justice, but just trying to illustrate it. Uh, you know, typically the, the lowest servant in the house would greet the guests and wash their feet when they came in. But it's like the owner of the house meets them and washes their feet. He humbled himself and did that task. Right? I mean, that's similar to, to the statement of how Christ, he became a man. He, he humbled himself. He became a man. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Right? Uh, he's still God, though. And this is, Pastor, would you read John chapter 3? I believe it's verse 13. Keep in mind, you can turn there if you want to, but keep in mind, this is Jesus and Nicodemus talking in conversation here, right? That passage in John 3, Jesus says previously, before that verse said that, you know, Nicodemus, saying to Nicodemus, you must be born again, right? And so on. But in that conversation, this is said about Jesus, or Jesus is saying these words. John 3, 13, and no man has ascended up to heaven, 
but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Now, just concentrate on that last statement in that verse. Jesus is the one speaking there, I believe, and he's talking to Nicodemus. He says, even the Son of Man which, what did he say? Is in heaven. Where was Jesus when he and Nicodemus were speaking? I mean, in one sense, yeah, he's standing right there talking with Nicodemus, but he also, while he's doing that, says, I'm in heaven. Wow, that's, that's, I can't explain that to you, but the point is, he's God, he's man. As man, he was standing right there, but as God, he still has the attributes of deity, and he's still everywhere. He's still in heaven. Now, you might say, okay, what? Well, this is important to what we're going to read in the next several verses, okay? Because basically the idea of what Hebrews is getting into now, Jesus was doing something physically here on this earth. But at the same time, he was doing that. When I'm, I'm talking about his dying on the cross, his getting up on the cross, all this, shedding his blood. At the same time, hard to understand, but at the same time, he was also in heaven doing things in that tabernacle in heaven. All right, so notice, let me get back to, uh, to this here in, in verse eight, uh, 12, he, not by his blood of animals, but by his own blood, he entered the true holy place, all right, by his own blood. Uh, and, and the idea here is this, this phrase, by his blood, it's talking about uh, through his blood. Now, this is interesting because I, I think the easiest way, I was trying to think about how to illustrate this or explain it, but it's kind of like there's places for whatever reasons, whether it's in the military or the business or the government or whatever, but there's places of restricted access where not just you or I could just walk up and go through a door. You have to have certain, they're, they're, and you know, most of them have like a badge that would get them in you know, or something of that sort. And it's like here, now think about this, in the old tabernacle, the people couldn't just go into that tabernacle, right? In fact, the people couldn't even go in the tabernacle at all. Only priests could go in the tabernacle, but even that, only one, the high priest, could go into that second veil, and that was only on one day of the year, and that was only under certain conditions. He had to have certain things to go in there, and he had to have the blood of a goat to go in there and sprinkle on that mercy seat. If he didn't, most likely he was dead. I mean, you see what I'm saying? And the point is, Jesus... Christ, he entered the true tabernacle in heaven to do a high priestly work of offering up his blood, as we'll see it said, and it's his own blood. He offered it up, but it was through that blood that he got there. In other words, that's what gave him access to go there, is the idea. Perhaps we could say, had he not had that, he wouldn't be able to go there. And do this, all right? But so that but through his blood he, he, he enters, okay? And notice also it says in verse 12, he entered in, and the emphasis of the word once here says by his blood, he entered in once into the holy place. The high priest had to enter in once a year, but he had, that had to be repeated every year. 
right? Jesus entered in once, and this particular word is the same one used later in the, in the chapter, but it's the idea of once and once for all, once for all time. It's a, it's a really emphatic word. Um, once for all time, he entered into the holy place. And in doing so, he obtained eternal redemption for us. Based on what he did here on earth, Jesus on the cross, and if I can word it this way to kind of help us in understanding, Christ in heaven, all right? Jesus on earth, Christ in heaven, all right? He's doing and accomplishing this work of eternal redemption for us, all right? So, letter B, not only did he arrive and he's completed his priestly work, that's part of the emphasis in that sentence, verse <clears> one. <throat> he did it once. It's once, it's done, all right? But then secondly, the offering up of Christ's blood secured true atonement. Verses 13 and 14, and these are some, some deep verses here, right? For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. Now, the, it's a conditional sentence. Okay? <laughs> the condition is verse 13. If those things really were true, and they were, Based on what the Old Testament said. This is what God said do. This is what God said would happen because of that. Again, it was all ceremonial. There was no real forgiveness of sins in any of the animal blood and the uh, using of, of ashes and purifying things and so on. Right? So the idea, the point he's making is in verse 14. How much more? Right? This is far greater than what went on in that Old Testament tabernacle. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All right. So the offering up of Christ's blood secured true atonement. Verse 13, 14. First of all, you see a comparison of his blood versus the blood of animals. All right. The blood of animals was prescribed by God. But it was only pictorial. Remember, there was really no real effect of a sheep's blood or a goat's blood or a bull's blood. It was just a chemical mixture of whatever blood is, okay? I mean, there was nothing really effective for it. It was just God was using it to show a picture. All right, then secondly, that blood was only effective enough to purify fleshly matters ceremonial cleansing, and so on, all right? All the things that the tabernacle did basically was just ceremonial, all right? But the proper application of these could, and they could ceremonially make one clean, but only that, only this ceremonial thing. It didn't really have any spiritual benefit. Then third, see, Christ's blood is effective to purge one's conscience from dead works. In other words, it can cleanse. The word purge is the idea of cleanse. And that's a word that's consistently used in the New Testament concerning Christ's blood and what it does. It cleanses. It doesn't just kind of put a covering over something. It cleanses it, purifies, purges it. Takes, I mean, it makes it completely clean, all right? And, and, and his blood purges one's conscience, it says here. Uh, from dead works. Um, this is an interesting statement, but 
basically, I think the idea is his blood can cleanse, can purge our moral consciousness before God. Think of this, all right? When Adam, or up till Adam sinned in the garden, the Bible doesn't like say it verbatim this way, but the implication is Adam had fellowship with God. And you know, God, in Genesis 3, it talks about how God came in the cool of the day and you know was coming to basically to fellowship with Adam. And I mean, God knew what happened and all this again, but it's there for us to under to picture and understand. But the bottom line is, before Adam sinned, he had a he had a right relationship with God. There, there was no reason for him to hide from God. He had nothing that was you know shameful, offensive, just like I, I, we were talking last night. But but uh, you know, Adam and Eve before sin, Bible says they were naked and were not ashamed. There's nothing to be ashamed of. There was no uh, sin in the world. There was nothing uh, that was between them, between them and God. I mean, and, but the point is that once they sinned, all that changed. What did they do? I mean, some of the obvious things, right? They tried to cover themselves. So their effort, and again, trying to conceal their sin, right, versus what God did later. Um, and then when God came calling, what did Adam and Eve do? Like they ran away from him because they knew they weren't right with him. They didn't have a good conscience before God, a good moral standing before God anymore. They lost that. When God said, by the way, this is one of those things, and I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but people get off on when the Bible talks about death, right? Death never means a cessation of being or existence. The concept of death in the Bible is a separation. When, when the Bible specifies, you think about this is true, you see it a lot of times in the Old Testament. Uh, it talks about how, I'm trying to think of a good example here, like for Jacob, I think, for instance, at the end of the book of Genesis, says that he gathered up his feet into the bed and gave up the ghost. That phrase is used. Gave up the ghost. That is, there was a separation of their spirit from their body, the immaterial them from the physical housing. Same thing said of Jesus, by the way. Uh, I'm trying to think which gospel says it this way, but uh, that you know, the last words, all right? He says it's finished, and then he says, "Into thy hands, speaking to the Father, I commend my spirit." And then it says he gave up the ghost. He willingly, I mean, in, in his part, I think he had control over his death, but uh, he, you know, the spirit left the body. All right, again, that's what that's what physical death is. It's a separation of the immaterial parts of man, spirit and soul, from the physical part of man, the body. Spiritual death is a separation of man from God. Right? Adam and Eve died morally as well. They died in every way possible when they sinned. The physical death started, it caught up to them. In fact, it's interesting. I don't know how many years Adam lived before he sinned, but in Genesis 5, it says Adam lived 930 years. I mean, so he lived a long time physically, even after he sinned. But it's, there's a lot of that. Maybe that just shows how great. God's work in creation was. It took that long for death to overcome, physical death to overcome Adam and 
But you can see clearly they died morally right there because they were ashamed. They ran from God. They, they didn't have that relationship with God anymore that they had. Right? And, and the point is, okay, Christ's blood is effective to be able to write that relationship with man. Right? Man's relationship with God. But only Christ's blood can do that. The blood of animals can't do that. I mean, in the garden, God obviously sacrificed, some people theorize it was lambs, whatever, I don't know, the Bible doesn't say, but it says that uh, the Bible, Genesis 3 does say that God covered, he gave Adam and Eve coats of skins, obviously animal skins, where do animal skins come from? Animals, all right, so some innocent animals had to die because of Adam's sin in the garden. Again, that's the, you start seeing pictures. Even then, and in Moses' day, all these other intricate pictures involved in the Levitical system were introduced by God to teach, to show what ultimately Christ fulfilled. Right? But Christ's blood is what's effective to right man's relationship to God. Not anything else. There is absolutely no other ingredient, if I can say it that way, in all the universe. It can make a man right before God besides Christ's blood. Only thing. And Hebrews 9 is saying that Christ offered up that blood in heaven. I'm thinking we're going to stop here because the rest of what's in those verses, there's a whole other part of those verses I want to talk about, and we will not have time in a couple minutes to do that today. Okay? So I'd like to save that for, for the next time. But just close with this emphasis that's one of the emphasis in these verses. It's only Christ's blood that can do that kind of cleansing and effect, have that effect on us and make us right with God. Only through the blood of Christ. Right? And obviously nothing else. Not our works, not our service, nothing else. They're just dead works. But only through what Christ has done can we be made right with God. And again, we're just going to have to stop here. Father, thank you for Lord, thank you for this, this wonderful passage of Scripture that we kind of just got into, really. But uh, help us, again, not just in understanding it, but help us, Father, to be appreciative of what Christ has done. He, he's done all so that we could be right with you. He willingly gave of himself and shed his, his blood so we could be right with you. Lord, we're, we should be, and we are thankful for that. Help us to have a greater, greater appreciation for what he's done for us. In Jesus' name we pray now.